And they were both naked, Adam and Eve, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. They did not feel shame. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. You notice how I picked like a, an edited, like, wait, what? There's a bunch of leaves in the way. How do I know if they're really naked? This is, a, this is an artist's rendition. And I'm going to talk about nakedness for some, some bit of this message, and I don't want you to feel uncomfortable because it's going to mean a whole bunch in this message. It's going to mean a lot. And I, want to, I don't want you to feel uncomfortable, but I, kind of, I do want you to feel uncomfortable to the point that you won't forget how much this means in the message and what Jesus has done for us. So let's pray and then we'll look at this. Jesus, I thank you that you've brought us to this place in scripture, this universal thought, that something that all of us deal with, guilt and shame, and help us to differentiate and rightly divide what these two words mean, how it affects our activity, how it affects our identity, and Lord, just basically that you would just help us to walk in the liberty and the freedom and the shamelessness uh, that you've bestowed upon us by your grace. I pray, Lord, if there's someone here shackled and maybe held down in like a shame spiral or they feel just anchored to where their ship can't, can't move any further because they're just weighted down with shame and and guilt, I just pray today, Lord, that this would be the freedom message uh, that, would, that would lift the anchor and then they could go freely about. And Lord, for, um, well, yeah, that's all I want to pray for now, Lord. Okay, amen. <laughs> so let's go back to the garden. Paradise in the garden was the absence of shame, but apparently the absence of clothing. <laughs> so, no clothes, no shame. The absence of shame, but the absence of clothes. They were both naked. Adam and Eve. And they had no shame. Shame off you. It's not shame on you. They had no, they were not self-conscious at that time. Eve wasn't like, oh my gosh, do you think I look fat? It wasn't, there was no body shaming. There was no, there's none of that. Adam didn't have a, a dad bod because he wasn't a dad yet, okay? There was no dad bod shaming. Uh, none of that. They had no shame. They didn't even know they were naked. It was not even a thought of theirs. It didn't even enter into their mind that they had no clothes. Obviously, the temperature was fine. Uh, everything was fine. But today we're out of the garden. We're in our clothes, and we find ourselves highly shame-based. It's very interesting. But there's a definite connection with nakedness and shame all throughout the Bible, as well as in culture and society, because of the sin and the fall of Adam and Eve. And right when they sinned, the first thing they did was they looked at themselves, and they saw that they were naked, and then they got ashamed. Before, before sin entered, they were looking at God they were God-conscious, they weren't self-conscious, but once they sin, it's an amazing thing what death does. It makes them to look inward and selfward, and now, and now they're image-conscious, and now they're self-conscious, and now they're shame-based. 
Whereas before there was no shame, when they sinned, they became self-conscious, and now they're shame-based. And I would dare say, ever since then, we inherited that mental DNA, or that, that, that sort of the way we look at each other and ourselves. We're highly sensitive, we're highly self-conscious, and we're highly shame-based ever since the fall. That's why I'm, that's why I'm here to say it's, it's really not, it's not isolated or insula insulated to a particular group of people or an action or an activity. Everyone has this. We inherited it from Adam and Eve. Look at Genesis 9.22. It'll be on the screen. Shortly after this, you have, um, you know, the flood, uh, and then, uh, at, or I mean, Noah and his uh, Ham, Shem, and Japheth got on the boat, and, his, and their wives and their family, so eight of them. And then they get off the boat, and it says in Genesis 9.22, and Ham uh, after Noah, the father of Cain, and saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment, and they laid it both on their shoulders, and they went backward and covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were backward, and they saw not their father's nakedness. I don't know why Noah was naked. He was drinking, um, you know, whatever you'd think about that whole incident. Whatever happened, Noah was excessive in the drinking. He got naked, and whatever happened there, Ham saw it, but the brothers didn't want to see his nakedness, so they, they made kind of like a blanket, or they took that, and they, they went backwards, and then they covered the, the nakedness of their dad. Why did they do that? Because evidently, they're not in the garden anymore, and even as righteous as Noah was, it was still a shame to have um, his man bits exposed. <laughs> Exodus uh, chapter 32 and verse 25. You'll know this. So Moses, so we deal with the famous guy. Um, none famous is Jesus, according to the, the lyrics, but there's some famous characters. Noah, famous in the Bible. Moses, famous in the Bible. And Exodus, and when Moses saw the nakedness that the, or saw that the people were naked, for Aaron made them naked under their shame. Remember, Moses went up to commune with God, and he's getting all this downloaded matrix information, you know, from, or, you know, to write these things and tell these people. He's not only getting these holy interactions and instructions from God, Aaron's orchestrating an orgy. They're drunk, they're partying, and Moses comes down, what the heck? Making a golden calf. Um, just nakedness. And isn't it interesting that drinking's involved in kind of in both of these scenarios here and nakedness. Um, and so I'm just, I'm just trying to track with you or chronicle, and this isn't all of that's mentioned in the Bible, but these are some highlights. If you look at Isaiah chapter 47, verse 3, also on the screen, God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah, and he's speaking to the nation of Israel. Thy nakedness shall be uncovered, yea, thy shame shall be seen. So you see an association with nakedness and shame. Nahum, uh, chapter 3, verse 5, also on the screen. Behold, I am against thee, says the Lord of hosts, and I will discover thy skirts upon your face, and I will show the nations thy nakedness, and the kingdoms your shame. Also dealing with the nation of Israel. Dealing with the church, Jesus says this in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 18. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried with fire, that you mayest be rich and white and in white raiment. Here's clothing. And by the way, we come, we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ, the white robes of righteousness. These aren't clothes that we washed. 
I know Tide is really pushing how clean and how environmentally safe they are and how pod friendly, like, ooh, your kids can't even open these and eat these. So whatever Tide's got going on is a big deal these days, evidently. But Tide is going to make your clothes and robes, not even your good works, as righteous as when we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. So it says that you may be clothed and that your shame of your nakedness does not appear. So I'm just pulling out just a few verses. I, the Revelation verse is the next slide. I'm just pulling out a few verses so that um, you'll see that there's an association with nakedness and shame. Now, originally, that wasn't God's intention. You know, it's something interesting, too. When babies come into the world, they're naked, right? And the Bible makes a big deal of that. Naked you came in and naked you leave. Uh, and no one thinks it's, like, shameful for a little baby to be naked. That's not shameful because they're innocent. I don't know what it is, but, you know, when people get older, if we're walking around naked now, it's like, ooh, gross. It's shame, you know? Shame. <laughs> Nakedness is such a big deal connected with shame in the Bible that God almost spends a whole chapter on this. Turn with me if you would. It's all, the references will be on the screen. But go to Leviticus. Leviticus 18. I don't want to read all of these verses because you'll get the idea really fast. But look at Leviticus, Old Covenant. God's given this law to Moses, and he's telling them all these specifics. Like, God gets really specific. Leviticus 18, this is the Old Covenant, verse 6. None of you shall approach to any that is near of kin to them to uncover their nakedness. I am the Lord. Verse 7, the nakedness of your father, the nakedness of your mother, you shall not uncover. Choose your mother, you won't uncover her nakedness. The nakedness of your father's wife, you shall not uncover. That's your father's uh, nakedness. The nakedness that is your sister, uh, the daughter of your father, daughter of your mother, whether you're born at home or born abroad, uh, even their nakedness, you shall not uncover. The nakedness of your son's daughter, the uh, daughter's daughter, even their nakedness you shall not uncover, uh, for theirs is thine own nakedness, the nakedness of your father's wife, and naked, 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 naked. You read the whole thing. It's all about nakedness. And you get the picture, like God's saying, like, no, we're not going to, no incest, no, nothing morally impure, like, let's just keep, let's keep the clothes on. Okay? Let's not get don't uncover people's nakedness because God was really, really, really adamant against sexual impurity and immorality. So the Bible makes a big to-do about nakedness. And I'm making it a big to-do because nakedness was associated with the original sin. They were naked and not ashamed. And when they sinned, they noticed they were naked, and now they're ashamed. And I think God's using nakedness as this huge allegorical and metaphorical, I mean, literally keep your clothes on. Well, clothes are metaphorical. I mean, literally keep your clothes on. But what we're doing is using it as an analogy for a bigger, more fundamental, more eternal picture that God really wants to, he's making a big deal about this so that when we come to the big deal, why it's a big deal, we'll be like, oh, that's why it's a big deal. Oh, okay. So 
go to the next slide. God's grace covers our sin and shame. As you recall, Jesus was stripped of all of his clothes and put to an open shame on the cross for us. Even in the midst of the original sin, way back where the first Adam, and remember Jesus is called the last Adam, interesting, by man came sin, also by the last man, Jesus, came righteousness, and there's always this comparison of Adam and Jesus, Adam and Jesus, because where Adam failed, Jesus succeeds. So go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, and let's look at what, what takes place here. So Genesis chapter 3, bless you, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. And I'm not going to make comments, because there's whole messages, and months and weeks can be spent on all of this stuff. I'm just going to get to the point that I'm, that's related to nakedness and shame, okay? But I, so I'm not skipping over this. I am skipping over it, but I'm reading it to get to the topic. For God does know that the day that you eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit thereof and did eat. And she gave also unto her husband. And he did eat. Remember, they're naked and they're not afraid. Like the show, get it? They're naked and not ashamed. So the eyes of them both were open. Right when they, they disobeyed, boom, their eyes were open. Maybe they're woke. And they knew that they were both naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. The first thing they, so now they're self-conscious, now they're feeling shame, whereas before they had no shame, it was just they were, they were looking at God, they were looking at each other, they were enjoying God, God the creator, they were enjoying God's creation, and everything's fine. But right when they sinned, they believed this lie, the first thing they did was they, they tried to cover up their shame. They tried to cover up their shame. Men and women through religion, through self-effort, have been trying to cover up their shame for thousands of years on their own terms. We're born sinners. We're going to sin because we're sinners, and that's what we'll do. And so we have shame-based messaging that we believe. It's our default because we inherited it from Adam and Eve. That's how they, they, their kids entered into the world with that messaging that they're telling themselves, with self-consciousness, now everyone, all of your kids, you, your parents, everyone's born self-conscious and wondering, what can I do about my shame? How can I cover my shame? I know, I'll do this. I know, I'll stop doing that and I'll start doing this. And it's this endless effort to cover shame on our own terms and our own way. And so here's the, you know, the First Baptist Church of the Fig Leaf is what I like to call it. 
And so they're coming to God on their own terms. They're making their own way. They're making their own righteousness. They're trying to say, God, is this good? I mean, I know we messed up, and evidently our bodies are wrong, and our bodies aren't wrong. There's no, your body is not. You, God created your body. It's not wrong, but there's something with the nakedness here that caused them to think, I'm wrong. My body's wrong. So they sewed fig leaves to cover up their bodies, and they made aprons. And then they heard the voice of the Lord God walking. I love that. The word was made flesh, but back then, the word was walking. How does a word walk? So the voice was walking in the garden of the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord because they had shame. There's shame. Shame causes you to go underground. Shame causes you to avoid. Shame causes you to isolate. Shame, if you believe shame, you're not going to come to church. If you believe shame, you're not going to have relationship. If you believe shame, you're not going to be in community. Shame isolates. Shame is like the ultimate divide and conquer. Shame, shame doesn't live in the light. Shame, shame lives in darkness. And where it's dark and dank is where it's mold and stinky and gross and icky. And that's where shame likes to live. And the Lord called unto Adam and said unto him, where are you? Of course, God's not asking for information. He knows exactly where everyone is. He's asking for confession. Just agree with what God already knows. That's what confession is. And he said, I heard your voice in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself, naked and afraid. I didn't even know that said that. That's so weird. I was looking for slides too that I could revamp it, you know, and I don't want to offend anyone. It's a delicate balance. Um, but I wanted to be naked and not ashamed, or naked and ashamed rather than naked and afraid. The show, it's a TV show, by the way. They blur everything out so you don't have to be ashamed. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree? Isn't that interesting? Who told you? Who told you that you're naked? It's got, this is a big issue. Right in the beginning, this is the original sin, the original fall, and look at how heavily it's focused on one's nakedness and appearance. Who told you you're naked? Have you eaten of the tree? Of course, God's not asking for information. This is all confessional stuff. Have you eaten of the tree? Wherefore I command you that you shouldn't eat? And the man said, the woman, what you gave me, <laughs> she gave me. <laughs> See, this moves from um, shame to blame, right? That's the shame-blame game. And the Lord said unto the woman, what is it you've done? And then the woman said, well, the serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. Shame-blame game. And the Lord said unto the serpent, Because you've done this, you're cursed above all cattle, above every beast. Your belly you shall go in the dust of the ground. And I will put... In, I, I, I preach a whole sermon on verse 15. It's the, it's the epic gospel. It's the, it's the beginning gospel. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed, the serpent's seed, and her seed. And it shall bruise your head, Jesus and you will bruise his heels. So there's been a seed war between the devil and Adam and Eve's offspring ever since. And you can kind of see that seed war in chapter 4. 
Cain uh, comes to God on his terms with works and sweat of his brow and effort and performance, like, like making an apron. And Abel comes to God on God's terms. He provides a sacrifice and coats um, because he learned that from his parents. For example, go to the next slide. So later on in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21, unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. Upgrade. It's like they got, they moved on to Pendleton, you know, because Pendleton does all their wool. No one got that. That's a Northwest company. Anyways, we don't have cold weather, but Pendleton makes wool stuff. So anyways, they got this lamby wooly woolly clothes and it's maybe not so itchy um, because the inside has skin on skin but the outside's furry. Anyways, who cares about the clothing? The point is this, is that they did fig leaves to cover up their lady bits and man bits because they felt shame. They felt shame. Shame on you. you you're naked. You're wrong. You're bad. You're wicked. Your body's terrible. Look at who you are. Shame on you. And so they're like, ah, cover, cover, cover. God, what did you do? Did you do what I told you not to? We did, but she made me do it. Oh, we had a thanks. I did, but the serpent made me do it. Um, I tried to say that like a snake. Um, and so God's like, okay, here's the consequence, death. Like I told you, death. They, lived, they were alive physically, soulically, but they died spiritually because God's a spirit, and he separated, but he also did something merciful and gracious in that, let me cover you. And so God, think about this. There was no death. There was no death. And then God, as a priest, kills an animal on their behalf, and then he covers them with the coats of a lamb which was to picture the Lamb of God that was to come to take away the sin of the world. But this was a covering. It didn't remove their shame. It just covered the shame. Which is going to, God is going to spend thousands of years in the old covenant based on this act. And it's going to be repeated. And it's going to come to a final conclusion when Jesus is going to come as the Lamb of God to take away the sin, and the shame. So, Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. Ezekiel 16, 8. It'll be up on the screen. Now when I passed uh, by thee, I looked upon you. Behold, uh, thy time was the time of love, and I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I swear unto you and entered into a covenant with you, says the Lord, uh, and you became mine. So you'll see God from the beginning in the garden all the way up to Israel, uh, playing the whore, which is the whole book of Hosea, by the way. <coughs> Israel, and it's interesting because Christ is the bride of Christ, right? And we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. But he he's, uses nakedness often as a picture of shame, guilt, separation, humiliation, and God comes in, the, in an act of his love and he covers it, but we're going to go one step further. He's going to do more than just cover it. He's going to kind of, he's going to tell us that he's going to take it all away. So when Jesus came as the Lamb of God, 
He not only took away our sin, he completely took away our shame. He not only was despised and, and, and he not only despised the shame, he took it, he defeated shame while hanging naked on the cross. Go to the next slide. So Jesus on the cross. I want you to, I want you to think about this with me. So the first tree was the tree of death, the no-no tree, the knowledge of good and evil. This tree was also a tree of death, but it also provided life. Now Jesus went to the cross willingly. All the animal sacrifices before that were not perfect sacrifices because they didn't volunteer. No animal was like, I'll go. No one, no one raises their hoof and says, pick me. Jesus, in the divine council, in the trinity, in the family of God, I don't know if he raised his hand, but he said, I'll go. I'll go and do this. And so going as a man, as the last Adam, remember, Adam was perfect. He was created of the dust. God breathed into him the breath of life, a man became a living soul, a body, a soul, and a spirit, sinless, but he was created. Jesus wasn't created. He's the uncreated creator, but he came also perfect, body, soul, and spirit. He was born of a virgin, meaning he didn't have that inherited sinful bloodline, and he didn't have that, that, that defaulted uh, self-conscious shame-based message. He came, and then he went to the cross, and he knew he was going to be naked. Willingly, he knew it. I don't think we think about this too much because the pictures that we do are very, you know, they're, they're kind of modified. And, uh, but Jesus was naked. This is interesting. I don't want you to think about nakedness in a, in a very bad way, but think about it in, the, in a theological sense. Nakedness was associated with shame. When Jesus went to the cross... He was naked in front of everyone, all to see. And the Bible says he despised the shame. He endured the cross, naked on the cross. He became sin for us who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus, the Lamb of God, who came to remove our sin, but first, he became our shame. He took the nakedness of the garden that came as a tree. He took nakedness and shame and he put it back onto a tree. The tree that brought death to all of humanity and shame and self-consciousness and, and hypercritical inward thinking and all the stuff that hangs us up that produces anxiety and, and self-worth issues and all of us esteem issues. All of that stuff is associated with the garden. Shame, shame, shame on you, the world says. And I say it to myself more than the world says it to myself. And Jesus says, I love you guys. I hate that you've been having to go through this for thousands of years. I'm going to become naked, and I'm going to become a shame. I'm going to take shame, and I'm going to put it on myself. So what Jesus does on the cross through nakedness, and I know we don't think about this very often. I know I didn't. But when you see Jesus naked on the cross or you just know it theologically with Jesus on the cross, think of that as he's taking shame off of me 
and he's putting shame onto him because he did it willingly. It's not like he went to the cross and was like, oh, wait, you guys are going to take my clothes off? He looks back up to the, you know, the triune family of God like, nope, I'm out. Peace. Good luck, guys. You know, I'll do all of it except the naked part. No, he's doing the naked part. He's becoming naked and an open shame so that God could put all of our shame and all of our nakedness and all of that on Jesus, and he removed it from us. That's a powerful thought. So, Carl Jung, that's will be a quote on the screen. Shame is a soul-eating emotion. We all deal with it. Leah Berduga, Berdugo, we can endure all kinds of pain. It's shame that eats men whole. But what's the difference between shame and guilt? You'll, you'll see it up on the slides here. Guilt says you've done something wrong. Shame says you are a person who's wrong. Guilt says that you've done something bad. Shame says that you as a person are bad. Um, <clears throat> is there another one? Guilt focuses on our activity, whereas shame focuses on your identity. Look, there could, guilt is kind of healthy in some way, in that um, if you've done something wrong, uh, let me illustrate it something kind of simple, and I wish Chloe was here. She just stepped out a, a moment ago. Okay, so you get a 50% on your math test. That's an F, right? F doesn't mean fine. It, it means, it doesn't mean nice try. It means failure. So you could tell yourself one of two things. Uh, I probably shouldn't have done a lot of other things other than studying. I probably should have studied, right? And, and I'll, I'll try to, I'm going to do better next time because I'm going to set some time. I'm not going to be as distracted. I'm not going to put it off. I'm just going to study. That's normal guilt. That's guilt that turns into a good action, right? Shame says, you're terrible. You're, you, you stink. You, you don't even know two plus two. You're lame. You're never going to get a job. You're never, no one's ever going to marry you. You're, you're not even hireable. You got an F on math? Who do, you th who do you think you are? So you can see the difference. Guilt focuses on your activity, whereas shame focuses on your identity. Let me just put it to you this way. This is something I recently learned. Oh, you missed it, darn it. Um, guilt can lead to a penitent attitude. What does it mean to be penitent? Remorseful. I'm, yeah, I'm sorry. I blew it, but I'm going to fix it, right? You know the word penitent? The word penitentiary comes from the word penitent. Did you know that? I just knew, I just, maybe you wordsmiths knew it all along. I just, I just learned this. Penitentiary. Why does someone go to the penitentiary? Because they're guilty, right? And, and they're paying for their crime. But let me just make an application to that. You could have done something wrong and be penitent and be like, you know what, I failed my math homework, but next time I'm going to study more. I'm not the problem. The problem is that I just approached it wrong. You know, I'm going to change my attitude and my actions about this. 
I'm not the problem. My study habits are wrong. Now, if I'm penitent, I'm going to make the right correction so I don't become guilty of that anymore. But if I believe shame, I'm going to live in the penitentiary of my soul and of my mind. Shame lives in the penitentiary. You are wrong. You are wrong. You are wrong. You're the problem. You're the problem. It's who you are. It's not what you did. It's who you are as a person. And so if you believe a shame-based message, and if, you're, if you feel guilty, penitent. I'm going to turn from that. But if you believe a lie, shame, penitentiary. You're going to be in prison. That's where depression lives. That's where anxiety lives. That's where uh, all the, like the traumatic disorders live. You will live in the penitentiary of your mind because you're telling yourself lies about who you are. And the devil loves, he loves people that live in the penitentiary. He loves it. Because if you're living in a penitentiary solically in your mind, you're not going to be effective helping other people because you're just looking inwardly. I think one of the biggest, the biggest um, uh, playbooks, if we're thinking strategy from the devil after the fall and people become self-conscious, is if I'm always looking inward, am I right? Am I wrong? Am I right? Am I wrong? And I spend my whole Christian existence pulling off flower petals. He loves me. He loves me not. Do I love me? I love me not. Am I okay? I'm not okay. If all I'm doing is playing games with am I all right, because I never really believe what God says about me and my identity, you're not going to be, you're not going to be sharing the gospel, sharing love, and doing life with others, because you're just concerned about yourself. And it's not that you're wrong for doing that. It's just that the devil has tricked you. And it all goes back to the garden. Realize Jesus took your nakedness and your shame, and you are all right. Not because I say so, but because God says so. There's no more shame left for you. It's shame off you. It's not shame on you. Now, in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, it'll be up here on the screen. Well, I'll illustrate it this way, too, but, but put the Daniel verse up there. You know, Judas, you have Judas and Peter. And, and it, at first glance, you're like, well, that doesn't seem right, because they both denied Jesus, right? Thank you for that warning. So they both denied Jesus, but the difference is with Judas... The devil filled his heart. He betrayed Jesus, and he died in shame. This was a whole identity issue for him. Peter, uh, you know, he says, I'll never deny you, and then he did it three times. His penitence, he looked at Jesus, and the Bible says that he repented. And he never did that after that. Remember, he, he didn't deny Jesus. I mean, he, he, he loved Jesus so much after that, he even went to jail for it. So... This was his activity. He felt guilty, but the guilt led him to penitence, whereas the shame led Judas to the penitentiary. And here's what I mean. Daniel chapter two and verse uh, Daniel chapter twelve verse two. And many of them that sleep in the dust or died in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Why? Whosoever's name was not found written in the Lamb's Book of Life was cast in the lake of fire. And when you stand naked before God, it's because you're not clothed with the righteousness of Christ. How do you get that? By achieving it? No, by receiving it as a free gift. He took the nakedness and the shame, so when you stand before God, you stand clothed in his righteousness as a gift. 
Shame off you, not shame on you. But if you want to come to God on your terms with your fig leaf and our fig leaf attempt, and I feel shame, but I'm going to fix it on, on my terms, you're going, to be, you're, going to stand, you're going to be naked, and you're going to be afraid. Could you imagine dying and standing before the great white throne naked? The books are open, and those who rejected Christ will be judged for all time and eternity in shame and separation from the Creator God. And remember, as God provided a, a covering for Adam and Eve, He He does He did that in Christ. He already He's already provided that. There's nothing There's nothing left to provide other than the free gift of His grace. If you reject that, you're naked. Doesn't have to be the case, though. Anyone could receive the free gift of eternal life and exchange their sin and shame for Jesus, who became sin and shame for us. Jesus is greater than our shame. He despised it. He became it. He conquered it so we don't have to face it or to have it. He became, he became shame so he could take the shame off of us. So Christian, it's no longer shame on you. It's shame off you if you have received the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking into Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. You know what the shame part is? Not only was humiliated and mocked and all that kind of stuff, he's hanging there naked. Nailed with nine-inch nails and his hands and his feet, naked. You can't even use your hands to cover your, your, yourself. Just naked for all the world, all the shame. And they went by and wagged their head. They went by in such disapproval and, and so much disdain and so much mock and so much repulsiveness. And, you know, here's the one that saved others. He can't even save himself. Look at now he's naked and ashamed. Pathetic. The devil really thought he had it. Really thought he had him. You know, this is like the son of God. I'm going to strip him naked and nail him to a cross. I bet the, de the devil was just doing like his like, his like disco dances. And yeah, yeah, we got the son of God. Look at he's naked. We got him. I don't know if that's a good devil dance, but go to the next verse on the screen. But I am a worm. Psalm 22 is a prophetic psalm about Jesus on the cross, about nailing his hands and feet and piercing him. I am a worm and no man, a reproach, which is the same word for shame, a reproach of men and despise the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. He deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. Pathetic. Look at you. You're naked. You can't even, yeah, what are you... What are you doing up there naked? Shameful. You were the king. Kings aren't naked. Kings are robed with, with like well, royalty and purple and fine clothing. You have no clothes. And you came in a couple days ago as the king. In fact, they mock him so much, they put, here's Jesus, the king of the Jews, right on the top in all three languages so that everyone could walk by and, and insult and hurl more shame. Shame. And you know... In Europe, if you've, if you've been there, the public squares are normally where they did their capital punishment or their, they would mete out their crimes. And they did that to shame people because they thought if we shame them, then we can, we can modify their behavior so they won't do it anymore. The same thing with the cross. And you guys were there. We, you were, 
back in the day in Israel, that was the main thoroughfare how people got to Israel through by Golgotha and Calvary, which are the Hebrew and Latin terms for the place of skull. So that, right there, and you're coming into Jerusalem, which was a major city, um, was the capital city of Israel, you would see naked Jesus right as you're entering. So all to see. It wasn't like off into the corner. It was so everyone could see the shame of naked Jesus. So, saw Isaiah chapter 50 on the screen. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off my hair. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. For the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded, therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. I was going to have us turn to Matthew 27, but I'm going to, for the sake of time, and I'm looking at the clock back there, and it's, it's going faster than I thought. So we'll skip to Matthew 27, but just take a note. Look at, look at that. It's, a, it's about Jesus on the cross and what's going on. More of this public humiliation and shame on display. But let me say this. Because Jesus took all of God's condemnation, wrath, and all of our sin and all of our shame, there's none left for us. There's none left for us. Isaiah 54 will be on the screen. Fear not, for you shall not be ashamed, neither shall you be confounded, for thou shalt um, not put to shame, be put to shame, for thou shalt not forget, uh, for thou, or wait, for thou shalt forget the shame of your youth. Prophecy in Isaiah 54. Romans chapter 10. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, Whosoever believes in Jesus shall not be ashamed. Are you guys still with me? Yeah? Okay. Romans 9.33, As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believes in him shall not be ashamed. Could you imagine? Oh, you're trusting in the naked one? And, and you're, putting, you're trusting in this king that looks very shameful. He's all naked, no, no robes of righteousness or purple. or doesn't look like a king. It looks like shameful to me. He's all naked. And he says, oh, and by the way, if you trust in Jesus, you will never experience shame. He will remove the shame from you. Why? Because he became naked and shame for you. So when we tell ourselves the truth, we can live in freedom. When we believe lies, we'll, li we'll live in bondage. It's, that's the simple fact of the matter. We are not who Satan says that we are. We're not who the world system says that we are. And we're not who shame says that we are. We are who God says that we are. That's why it's so important to get the Bible's view and God's view of yourself rather than your emotions or rather than your shame-based messaging because it's still... That's why we come to church to renew our mind. The messaging is still going to come. It's like the 24-hour news cycle. Your Fox News ticker tape is running all the time. All the time. And it's telling you all the bad stuff, and there's some good stuff every once in a while. <laughs> but we believe that that's why we're suckers for news, because it's sensationalized. We love it. It's all the bad stuff. And so we believe all the bad stuff, and we believe the shame-based messages. So Israel was released from slavery externally, but they did not release slavery from themselves internally. Now, 
I'm going to kind of edit and, and as I go along here, go to, the, go to the slide where it says imposter syndrome. Fast forward here really fast. So imposter syndrome. Have you guys ever heard of this before, imposter syndrome? You're, you're legit, but somehow you feel illegit because you want to quit, because the messages you're telling yourself is that I'm not good enough, all that kind of stuff. Basically like, oh, my friends are only still here because they pity me. I don't deserve any of the things I work for because I didn't work hard enough. He only loves me because he hasn't realized I'm bad. I shouldn't even celebrate this success because it was just some random luck. What if I'm just faking being a good person and everyone is falling for it? Any praise I get just feels undeserved. Everyone is going to realize that I'm just a fraud. If you, are all, if you all really knew me, I don't think you'd really like me very much. This is a good thing. It's just a fluke. Uh, I'm not as good as people tell me I am. They're just being polite to me. Imposter syndrome is so rooted into shame and we get confused and this is the stuff you can't turn off. How many of you are relating to this already? You're, have you told yourself any of these messages? Because I've never met anyone that's like, dude, I have no problems. I'm, I'm doing pretty, pretty, pretty good in life. No help coming this way. This guy's got it, okay? I'm walking good here. I'm fine. I, I mean, if someone's honest, they've all experienced a little bit of an imposter syndrome. But I'm here to say that you don't need to feel that way. You don't need to believe these messages because that's not who God says that you are. You're righteous. You're holy. You're complete. You're united in Christ. The shame has been removed. It's not shame on you. So if you, if you get a message that I am wrong, I'm the problem, it's me, I'm at fault. Not, I'm not talking about guilt. When you've done something wrong as a behavior, that's one thing. But if you believe something wrong as an identity, that's another thing. One is guilt that leads to penitence. The other is shame that leads to the penitentiary of your mind. Go to the next slide. So imposter syndrome, you know, who do you think you are? They don't love and accept you. Why would they? You don't deserve to be heard, do you? Or here, do you? You are not who you think you are. I have done that many times as a pastor and now as a clinician. And I sit in the room, I'm like, why are you? If you only know who I was, I don't, you wouldn't even be coming here and paying money for this. You know, I'm like, you're insane. You know, I wouldn't, if you knew me, I wouldn't pay money for this. Um, and that is just not fair to them. It's not fair to myself. Um, so I think we all struggle with that at some point in life. And it just comes right back from the devil in the garden, giving you a shame-based message, turning you inward, having you doubt who you are. And then you, here we go, looking for ways to cover that up. So go to the next slide. So imposter syndrome. This, I'm just riffing off this in Luke chapter 14, verse 9. And he that made thee said, come, get this man, give this man a place, and begin uh, with shame. Go back with shame to take the lowest room. Remember, like the guy elevated himself, and then he, then the, the host came and then put him down. <laughs> And he thought too highly of himself, and he got humbled. Um, 
But what I'm here to say is that we have been seated in Christ in heavenly places. We are in the family of God. We are kings and priests. We are not imposters. You are who God says that you are. We're, we're not who shame says that we are. We are who the Savior says that we are. We don't need to wear the shame chain because of who we are now in Christ. We went from failure to family, from a mess to a message, from sinner to saint, from shame, uh, shame on you to shame off you. So Jesus took the shame off us and put it on himself, and there's none left for us. We don't need to believe the imposter syndrome or the shame-based message that we all kind of default with and we inwardly struggle with. You know, if you were to bring this stuff out, this is why therapy is so effective too, because people sit on this, they're so ashamed of the things that they believe and the things that they tell themselves or the things that they've done that where the guilt's morphed into shame. So they keep it bottled up inside and this is anxiety, depression, or they'll turn to alcohol and drugs to kind of cover shame based on you know coping mechanisms. It's all shame-based, shame-based, shame-based. And you know when they come to therapy because they're afraid to, to talk to their friends about it or their family because it's so shame-based. So I deal with shame on a regular basis. When they get that inside stuff out, you know what happens? Shame can't live in the light. They get freedom. That's why it's effective. It's not even magic. It's not like there's not, it's nothing special. It's just the person getting the stuff in the dark, dark recesses of their soul and getting it out. And just, to, just getting it out is healing. You don't have to do anything. You just sit there and be like, hmm, tell me more. And they're healing themselves just by getting it out into the open. Because shame lives in the dark. It can't survive in the light. So here's some good quotes. Uh, Andrew Farley put it this way. God not only gives us a new life in Christ, but a new past. Our sins are not only forgiven, but they are totally forgotten. And think about, think about um, I was telling Jen this this morning. I said, you know, one thing I've learned about God lately is that when he says, your sins and iniquities I'll remember no more, God knows everything, right? Or else he wouldn't be God. He's omniscient. But think about this. God has to willingly choose to not remember and to forget. Because he's perfect, he can perfectly not remember, and he could perfectly forget our sins. Now, if we're going to agree with what God says, your sins and iniquities I will remember no more, the devil's going to bring them up, shame-base you, You'll dwell on it because we forget the gospel. We have like gospel amnesia. It's like we can't remember what God says, but we can remember our sins. <laughs> God says, I'll remember your sins no more, but we live in the remembrance of our sins and we condemn ourselves and we shame ourselves and the devil's like, yeah, more, 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 more. If we take the God approach, he chooses. He knows all things. He knows all the sins, but he chooses not to remember your sins, all of them. He chooses to re remember them no more. So if we choose to think about us the way God thinks about us, we'll start moving in a healthy direction. So we not only have a new past, but um, a new future. Our sins are not only forgiven, they're completely forgotten. Brene Brown, who's an expert in this area about shame, she says this, we cannot grow when we are in shame. 
and we can't use shame to change ourselves or others. In other words, uh, just as hurt people hurt people, shame-based people shame-based people. So a hurt person will hurt other people, but a shame-based a shame person will try to shame other people as well. And you just got to know who you are when that comes at you. So we sometimes will shame people to motivate people, right, like public humiliation and stuff like that. Um, uh, and that is not a good motive. It only provi provides short-term gains and long-term losses. And I want to apologize to my kids if I've ever done that to you from the pulpit. My bad. And I'll close with a couple of these quotes. Uh, I think this next one I've quoted before, but I took part of it today, not the full length. The only reason we could ever love, forgive, and accept others because Christ has first loved, forgiven, and accepted us. It's true that we will treat others the way we feel like God is treating us. So your biggest, best relationship is with God. And if you are getting the message that God's just so disappointed in you as a person, he's just got his arms crossed, he's wagging his head, he's like, got his glasses off, and looking down, and Maybe he's got an office chair and he just turns it around. He just can't stand to look at you and just like. Just kidding, Heather. <laughs> I knew she was there. Um, God doesn't do that. That might have been your earthly dad, your mom, primary caregiver, significant other. But that's not how God relates to you. So we will always relate to others the way we feel like God's relating to us. Hurt people will hurt people, and shame-based people will shame-based people. And so if you feel like God's shaming you in order to get you to comply, you'll treat others likewise. And that's sad. Whole churches are run that way, by the way. Whole ministries are run that way. May it never be. Um, Sam Kellerman put it this way. If you could do nothing else, do whatever is in your power to make the people in your life feel completely unashamed of who they are. Notice he didn't say of what they've done. There's a big difference. Your activity could be off. That's guilt. Your identity, that's who you are. That's shame. It'd be like this, you know, like, I love you. I love you. I think you're better than 50% on, on this test. You know, why don't you try, like, uh, studying more, you know, and this isn't about any of my kids. I'm just talking about people that go to school because um, I just went to school. You know, you're better than this. You could do more. So it, it's not you as a person. It's like this activity can change, but your identity is not wrong. It's not who you are. Um, I love this quote. Some, it's, I don't know the pastor's name, but he was a pastor at, Life Ch at a church called the Life Church. The only way to heal from shame is to move the focus from what I am not to who Christ is. I like that. And then lastly, look at these last slides. I am not fill in the blank. Because of Christ, I am blank. And this is shame-based correction. And this really, the format turned, it out, turned out different on the screen than on my computer. But go to this last slide, and this will be it. I am not a victim. Because of Christ, I am victorious. So you could live as a victim, that's like shame, I, that's who I am. 
but of who I now am in Christ, I am victorious. So we can move from victim to victorious. We could move from shame-based messaging to savior-based messaging of who we are in Christ. I had some questions to do for table talk, um, but just to leave that with you, if you put them up on the screen, what would your life look like if you woke up tomorrow and you did not feel any shame between you and God? Question number two, how would not feeling shame-based messaging affect the way we relate to one another in our homes, our relationships, and church life? And lastly, what would our life and the relationships around us look like if we were free in Christ and were shame-off-you messengers to ourselves and to others? But first and foremost, I think this is a message for yourself. What would your life look like if you really told yourself and believed in yourself? Shame off you. Because Jesus became naked and ashamed for you. There's none left. There's none left for you. Let's pray. Jesus, for someone here that's never received you, uh, they've never received the free gift of eternal life, I pray that they would by faith alone in Christ alone today do that. For those of us that are believing lies, maybe it's imposter syndrome, maybe uh, maybe it's just shame-based messaging and that we're the problem, it's us, it's me, and I'm wrong. Uh, may we correct that thinking because you took the shame off us. For those of us that feel guilt because we've done something wrong, may we just be penitent about it, be repentful and, and uh, reconcile those things and then move forward, but not to be stuck. And so I pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.